All right, welcome to the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we uh, invite or we teach accredited business owners uh, how to invest in anything that's not the stock market, i.e. alternative asset funds managed by professional managers. And today we have on the show Natty Zola, uh, who, uh, pre- who I used to previously work with at Techstars. Natty was my managing director uh, when I went through the Techstars Accelerator program uh, when I had my startup. And, uh, and then we have my co-host, uh, Mike Klein, uh, who's a fellow GP uh, or general partner. He runs his own fund uh, at Crypto Bull Capital, which is a, a crypto fund. Mm-hmm. And uh, just welcome to the show. Thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And, and I actually uh, sat on a board with Natty. Yep. So, yep. so we, we're, we're close. We have Good a lot people. of uh, history together, which yes. is great. What, what, uh, what board? Um, Ave. Ave, yeah, that's yep. right. Yeah. Yep. The, yeah. Uh, co- my fellow co- classmate. That's yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the Techstars program. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yep. Okay, well, cool. So to kick us off, Natty, this uh, this show is all about funds. Tell us about specifically venture capital. Why should we, if we're looking at all different types of funds, whether it's real estate or oil and gas, or I don't know, last week I was talking to someone who invested in pharmaceutical funds. Tell us why we should be in venture capital. Great. Well, all, venture capital is a pretty broad asset class, so maybe I'll narrow it as a little bit here. And the part that I'm really familiar with is software-based venture capital, where you're investing in software companies, anything from the earliest stage. So it could be a guy and a gal in a garage with an idea on a napkin up to a scaling business like a company like Stripe, which is still a private company and it has attracted late-stage rounds of venture capital. So that phase of venture capital is you know, a relatively large um, asset class now and covers a wide gamut. Why investors should be interested in it is if you look back, and I don't have this data on me, but I think of the last 15 years, the top performing asset in many of those years, more, more than any other asset class is actually venture capital. So I don't know the exact number on it, but I think it's sort of averaged north of a 15% IRR. Um, some years it's been, been as high as 30%. So it's actually been one of the top performing asset classes over the last 15 years. And that's really driven by a few factors, but the rise of technology, software sort of eating the world. And we see that trend continuing. And I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit more. But if you just look at pure returns, it's been one of the top performing asset classes. And if you want to build a diversified mix um, across different assets, it provides sort of a unique uh, way to increase returns and um, work across a longer duration that I think appeals to a lot of investors. Yeah, what's like the typical type of investor that maybe you've uh, interacted with that, that invests in funds like yours or Techstars or, you know. Yep. I think there's sort of like two main groups. So there's institutional investors. So this might be pension funds, endowments, large family offices, where they're really a sophisticated investor investing across many asset classes. And most of them allocate some portion of their capital to alternatives or private equity. And then a piece of that is venture capital. It, it tends to be a smaller piece. So maybe in the call it two to 10% range. Um, so it's not the main asset, but it is certainly a bucket that there's consistent um, capital going into. And then the other side are individuals. So we like in our fund and many fund pure funds, we have a lot of either high net worth individuals or accredited investors who are excited to invest in venture capital funds, not only for the returns, but they also get to be on the cutting edge of technology and the future. And so instead of investing in sort of like legacy businesses, you're really investing in what, what is what is the future going to look like um, and, and being part of that. And so we see a lot of individuals who get excited about investing in venture because they 
don't know, they get to kind of like look around the corner, play a part of the future. Um, and like I said, it's, it's performed well as an asset. And so those are kind of the two big buckets. Um, and then I would say maybe the middle bucket is family offices. So you have, you know, smaller family offices who are trying to build sort of a diverse portfolio and it becomes part of their mix to larger family offices that have really sort of like act like institutional investors. And t- talk to us a little bit about how that investment works. So we have like, we have liquid funds, right. That really focus on, on cash generation on the show. And then we also have funds that really focus on building wealth. And that's the primary um, focus of those funds. Talk to us a little about venture. What are the nuances there? What are the, like, what's the experience of an LP over the life of a fund? How long is a fund? All that good yep. stuff. Yeah. So venture is unique in the sense that it is not optimized for cash flow. Right. It's optimized for a big, you know, the, the goal is you give a fund like mine a, a bag of money and our goal is to return a much bigger bag of money over the next 10 years. But it is not designed to generate consistent cash flow. It's really designed to build a multiple on the initial investment over a longer period of time. So <clears throat> I, I think that's important for potential investors to know, because what ends up happening is as a limited partner, you give the general partner a commitment. They call that capital over two or three years as they invest that into startups. But you're not going to see that capital back for seven to 12 years. The average venture fund lasts 10 years. Um, and so really the the expectation from an LP should be anywhere north of the 3x return over that time period. The cool thing about venture is you're sort of have an uncapped upside. So it's very hard in other asset classes to have a 10x return or a 50x return or a 100x return. And while that's super rare in venture, it can happen across a fund. And I'm friends with with a few fund managers who have delivered over 100x returns on their funds. And so the upside case in venture is very appealing. And if you if you invest in a good manager, you know, I think your downside is also limited. Um, and it should perform as well as sort of a public equity portfolio on the downside. But you really have sort of uncapped upside, which I think is exciting. But you do tie up your your cash. And so it is an illiquid asset. And that that makes it really uh, LPs need to think about how does this fit in their mix of assets because you're not getting a constant stream of cash flow from it. Yeah. And let's talk about that a little bit. So, I mean, I have a background in venture mm-hmm. capital and, you know, some of the things that I experienced, it was pretty funny after I'd been in the profession for a while, were, were these, these kind of nuances that you take for granted. For instance, I remember talking to LPs and there's be like this epiphany moment where they said, oh my gosh, like you're saying, uh, like if I'm putting a hundred thousand dollars into your fund, you don't just call $100,000 at once. Like you said, it's called over two years in increments. And then the same on the exit side, right? Like it's not just one big exit at the end of the rainbow. You're right. getting exits along the way. Yeah, so this is sort of different from other things and I think worth digging into. So let's say hypothetically you make a $100,000 investment into a into a venture fund. What typically will happen is they won't take that money up front. At some point, they'll sort of like close the fund right. and then they'll start calling capital. And what typically happens is that capital is called over three to four years. And it ends up, it depends how the, the GP manages it, but let's just say for sake of ease, they're going to call capital twice a year. So, and they're going to call capital over four years. So there's basically eight capital calls over the first four years where they're going to be taking one eighth of your commitment at mm-hmm. a time and investing it over that next six months into companies. Then what typically happens is from sort of end of year four, until they start to some of those companies start exiting, there's really no flow of capital, maybe, you know, a small flow of capital for fees and stuff like that, which we can talk about. But really, it's like over four years, you're sort of slowly calling capital. And then towards the tail end of the fund, as companies start to exit, that capital starts getting returned and hopefully multiples on that capital. 
But there's an interesting sort of mis- mismatch in terms of when the capitals called and when the capitals returned. That is some ways a feature and some ways a bug. Like the feature of it is you can't really do anything else with that capital once it's committed. So it doesn't really allow you to sort of like be swapping in and out of assets. Like you're committed and you are there for the ride of those companies. And for some investors, they love that because they don't have the overhead of thinking about like, should I move this across assets and stuff like that? And I know a lot of investors who are excited that, hey, I park my capital with you. I know I'm going to hopefully see a big return in 10 years. I can't really do much around it. And so for some people, that's a feature. For some people, that's a bug because they want to be able to like maneuver their capital around and shift it between asset classes. And you just really can't do that with venture. Um, so that's the typical flow of funds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's super helpful. So when when you're... Th- investing in uh, investing in startups give give me an example of a fund or an an example investment where you 100x you know i'm thinking maybe yeah 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 cool so um we have multiple companies in our fund that we've been lucky to invest in from the earliest stages and then see them really scale so i'll give like two examples of companies that we got to know very early um when they were like so a company here in Denver, it was basically like two women who had this great idea um, and we invested in them basically at the at the idea stage. Um, that company, we made our initial investment, I think at around a $4 million valuation, what the company was worth. Um, that company is now worth well north of $200 million. And so, you know, here you have a 50x return on a company already that's scale that I think has barely scratched the surface of what they could do as a company. And so we expect that company to become you know, hopefully worth well over a billion dollars. And so there you go from a 50X to, you know, hopefully like a 200X return. And that's just one position of 35 investments that we, at least at Matchstick, make per fund. Obviously that's an outlier and hopefully we get multiple of those in a fund and that's where you have a really top performing fund. But, you know, there are going to be startups in the portfolio that don't, don't do well and do fail. And I think from a venture investor perspective, we kind of look at it as a third of our companies are going to fail. And that's fine, right? They... Those on, we hopefully we back the right entrepreneurs. They work their tail off. Maybe the market didn't materialize. Like who knows, right? That just happens. About a third of the companies are going to return about what we invested, a 1x return on capital. And that might be a combination of some companies that double the value, some that half the value. But there's like, you know, we kind of get our money back. And then you have a third that really are the outlier performers. And the hope is in those outlier performers, you have some real, real outliers, you know, some 10x to 100x to 200x returns that really drive the returns for the fund and um you know that's what we're really trying to find as venture investors are these are these sort of like power law distribution in returns within a fund so it's really you know as a prospective lp in a fund like yours i would i shouldn't be scared or think you're a terrible manager if like a third or even half of the companies fail like that is to be expected and then you have one, two, or, you know, if you're really, if you really nail it, like three, four, five companies that blow it out of the water and you have, maybe you invested 50K and that could turn into, I don't know, either 150K or could turn into a mill or turn right. into, right. Yeah. And I think that's sort of, it's, it's, it's a unique thing about the asset class. Cause like, usually when we think about investing, like failure is not an option, right? Like we don't put money in public equities expecting that company to go to zero, But in our world, we should like if we're making the right investments and taking the right amount of risk, we we want I mean, we don't want companies to fail. But if our companies aren't failing, we aren't taking enough risk. Right. And so what we really get paid to do as venture investors is to be very thoughtful about 
where is technology going? What are the technology trends that could be really big over a 10-year period and make really smart bets in companies that would, would capitalize on those secular trends or macro trends that are happening? And some of those trends don't end up materializing, and so those companies fail. Some of those trends end up being smaller than we expected, and that's kind of where you get your money back. But some of those trends ends up, end up being huge. And when you catch a company that really is able to like have a great management team, catches a trend, I mean, you know, the upside is sort of uncapped on what you can what you can earn as an investor and the impact that that company can have. And that's a really fun part about being an investor in venture funds is like you get to go along that roller coaster and see all of that stuff. Um, where if you're investing, you know, real estate's not really going to do that. Like public equities are not going to do that. Um, and so that's why, you know, frankly, a lot of investors are excited about venture. Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about stages. Cause I think that that's really important, right? So, um, talk us through like the different stages of venture, how that works. And then, um, you know, what, what different stage venture funds, what they're going to look for in the profile of the companies that they're targeting. Yeah, it's a great point. So we at Matchstick, we are a seed fund. So we're investing at the earliest stages. So this is like a guy in a gal in a garage with an idea up right. to a million dollars in revenue. So this is when a company is probably at its riskiest point. Um, but we get compensated for that because if the company really works, we invested at a much lower valuation. And so we get the benefit of all of that compounding value and upside. Above us are Series A investors. So these are investors who are taking on less of the sort of like product and team risk that maybe a seed investor is taking on, but the company is still early. So these are investors who are typically investing when a company hits about a million or 2 million in revenue. And their goal is let's get this company sort of to the $10 million range. And those are bigger investments. There's, there are fewer of those because not many companies sort of get to that stage. Um, and then you go on from there. So you have series B, series C, series D, which is sort of like each layer of growth for a company, call it from 10 million to 30 million in revenue, 30 million to 100 million. And then you sort of get to the, like the pre-IPO and later stage venture funds. And so there are specific skill sets and specific values that different VC funds deliver across that stack. And for entrepreneurs, they really want to find like who's the right partner at each of those stages, who has a ton of experience getting a company through that phase and then to the next phase and, and has a network with those investors to kind of help that company go across that journey towards eventual, you know, big exit or IPO. Um, and so that's sort of like how the process works is companies sort of graduate from seed to series A to series B, series C, and whatever rounds they need before ultimately exiting or going public um, is the goal. Obviously, you know, not every company makes it through that whole phase, but hopefully, uh, you know, we're all at least on the same trajectory of trying to do that. Yeah. Why do you, why do you focus on seed stage uh, versus, uh, let me ask that question differently. Perspective LP. Mm -hmm. Why would I, and I've decided, look, venture capital, something I'm interested in, I want to place money here. How do I choose between a seed fund and a series C fund? Yep. Like, well, yeah. So it may, it depends sort of on the risk tolerance that you want and also maybe what's interesting to you um, and what return profile. So let's go through those. So first is, uh, or maybe I'll start with what's interesting to you. So investing in sort of a later stage fund, those funds typically uh, are much bigger because you have to deploy more capital. Like instead of us writing, we write a million dollar check into a seed company, they're going to write a $30 million check. So they really can only do a few of those or maybe even a hundred million dollar check. Like it kind of depends. So 
what you're investing in there is sort of a more secure business that's more established, but your upside and, and potential return on your investment is lower because that company is raising at a significant valuation. And so, you know, you can't go from a, you know, maybe you're raising at a $500 million valuation for that company. If you 4X it, that's a $2 billion company. There are not that many $2 billion companies out there. Like that is a big company at that point. So you're, you're having less risk, but you have also less upside. If you flip to the earlier side, like where I'm investing, we're going to have more companies fail. We're going to have, you know, more companies in our portfolio. So you get to see a lot more companies. You get to be at the like earliest stages where you're going from zero to one, which some investors just really prefer because they think that's more interesting than sort of that like, you know, later stage where it's really around optimizing the model. Um, but at the earlier stage, you have more potential for outlier returns because we are aiming for taking a company from, say, a $5 million valuation to a $500 million valuation. That's a 100x return for us, which is going to return our fund and generate great returns for our portfolio, where you cannot really go 100x from $500 million. Well, there are a few exceptions out there, of course. And if you get in those companies, like, you know, it's fantastic <laughs> returns. But um yeah, so it's it kind of had like is a is a combination of what are you interested in working or what what like stage of company is interesting to you? What return profile do you want to have? Do you want to have a little bit more certainty but lower returns, or do you want to have a little le less certainty but higher returns? Um and yeah, I I think those are sort of like I guess the other thing is, is access. So um one problem is a lot of these later stage funds, it's hard for an individual investor to get access to the top quality ones because these are they tend to require like pretty big minimum investments just for since their funds tend to be bigger. And so I think it's a little bit harder for like the individual accredited investor to do those later stage funds. Um, although there is a bunch of innovation happening there around uh, special purpose vehicles, angel list stuff that gives can sort of aggregate a bunch of smaller checks into these later rounds. Um, like a friend here in Colorado is doing that, that I think is very interesting, but that's sort of been a harder asset class for people to access just due to the size of numbers on the earlier side of things. You know, we work with small investors, you know, $50,000 commitments. And so there's a lot more access to that type of fund um, for the individual investor as well. And then, and then there's not just stages when you think about the type of fund, but also industries talk to us about geography yeah yeah, yeah. talk to you us know. about all the yep. different types of of funds yes yeah, so you've seen this huge proliferation of vc funds so I, I don't have the exact stats on me but like venture capital as an asset class has grown a lot in the last four or five years and we've we've ridden like a pretty significant bubble which we can talk about at some point but i think the ma the macro trend of technology not slowing down innovation not slowing down software being applicable in more and more industries is there for the long term. So, you know, long term venture is a very solid, very like prevalent and growing asset class, even though we may see a little bit of a downtick just because of the run up for the last little while here. Um, but every VC fund sort of should have a strategy. Are they focused on a certain industry that they know super well? Are they focused on a super on a business model that they know really well? Are they focused on a geography where they have unique access to startups? And so I think if you're underwriting a venture fund, you want to really believe in whatever strategy they have and feel like the GPs are uniquely qualified to execute on that strategy. So you may, you'll come across funds that are only investing in AI companies. And that's great, right? The underlying thesis for that fund is AI is going to be a bigger part of the future. There's going to be great businesses built around that. 
and they are gearing their whole fund strategy around attracting the best AI startups and then investing in, in the ones that really stand out to them. And I think that's fantastic because they're experts and they should be able to attract really good investment opportunities. Um, you might have a venture fund that only invests in marketplace businesses. So maybe they're generic across, they don't really care about what segment they're serving, but they only want to invest in marketplaces because they know that business model super well. Maybe they ran a big marketplace business. Maybe they there's some hit something in their history that makes them uniquely suited to, to do well in that business. I think you know that's really good to look for. Or you might have a geography. So I'll use Matchstick as an example. We're investing in what we call underserved but rapidly growing geographies, mostly the Rockies, Colorado, Utah, or the north regions of the U.S., Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Indiana, Ohio, where we see there are great entrepreneurs, but they don't have the same access to capital. And for us, for a fund strategy, that gives us good deal flow or great deal flow that other people aren't getting or aren't looking at. And that enables us to win good deals at good prices. And so if you're a potential LP, I think you just want to have a really, really good confidence around what is the strategy that this GP is putting out there? Are they uniquely suited to ca capture that strategy? And for you, does that strategy hold water? Like, do you believe that AI is going to be as big as it potentially is? Do you believe in marketplace businesses and there being a bunch of potential for that? Do you believe in investing in companies off the coast in, in these other geographies? And if you don't, don't invest in that in that uh, fund. But I do think, you know, every VC fund should have a pretty distinct strategy that plays to their strengths. So I think there's actually a natural, really cool progression there. So if, when you're putting your LP hat on, mm -hmm. what are, or may, maybe a better way to say is when an LP is in across from you, what are the questions that you wish they would ask you? What are the best questions to ask um, the managing team of a venture fund as you're assessing, do you want to invest in that team? I, I kind of like hearken it back to like Jim Collins, who I used to work for. There's sort of like his hedgehog concept, which is like the union of these three circles that I've sort of like changed for this question. One is what can that GP be the best in the world at? Mm -hmm. Like, do they know something super well, like an industry? Do they have access to startups in a unique way? And so like, what is sort of special about that GP um, that is a competitive advantage for them? Two is how does that competitive advantage show up in their model? So um, is there basically, is there a way that if they execute on this strategy that, that they are the best in the world at, it can generate significant returns. And so that would be like in some of the examples we've talked about, okay, what, is, what are like, what are, what are, what are they invest? What AI startups do they have access to? At what price are they investing in them at? And what is the exit potential for those companies? So sort of does the like unique strategy of that GP actually have like a, you know, sound business chance of working if they execute on it. And then I would say the third one is, is like, you want to find the GPs that are obsessed with it. Like it is not an easy business. These funds take 10 years, your hand to hand combat with the entrepreneur. That sounds bad in the sense that we're not competing <laughs> with them, but you're like, hopefully you're sitting next to them in the trenches, helping them figure stuff out. You're going through that roller coaster with them. So it is it is a very slow way to maybe get rich. So you've got to find the GPs that really love it and, and it's their mission because otherwise there's just, I would say like easier, quicker ways to you know possibly get rich. So you really want the ones that like for them, this is their like true passion or calling. And so I, I would want to, I would want them, the LP to ask questions to kind of get clarity around those three things. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a really good point, right? Is like a lot of people, they think of just private equity and they lump venture capital in there. But to me, like, you know, general private equity, 
you often are taking majority ownership in a company, you have control, you're maybe injecting your own management team, where in venture, you really have to play nice with the entrepreneur and you have to be a trusted um, source of wisdom because you don't have that, right? Like talk a little bit about that, but you you don't own like 50% of the company. You don't yeah. have majority on the board. Like you're, you're really betting on the team that exists. Yeah, I, I think you captured it super well. I mean, that's, that's the unique thing here is like what we need to be really good at certainly on the early stage is like finding the teams for whom this is like their life's work. It can't not work for them. And they are, you know, as obsessed with it as we are about working with them. And so you really are backing a team and your job as a VC is to, is to build a trusted relationship with them so that you have influence at the time when it matters most and that those entrepreneurs come to you when they need help. And if you don't build a trusting relationship, they're not going to come to you when they need help. And therefore you can't help work on the value of that business that you've invested in. Where in private equity, you're kind of taking over, you're putting your team in charge, you have more control. And so the beauty of the venture model is you're finding the best and the brightest who are better than you are at operating that company and giving them the resources to go do that. And, and that, you know, can make, that can be bigger than something that you could, you could run yourself, but the downside is you don't control it. Right. Um, and so that's like this unique balance that VCs have where it's like you need to build a trusted relationship so that you have influence, but you aren't the one in the driver's seat, um, which, you know, sometimes can be frustrating because you, you know, you want to tell an entrepreneur to go left, but they need to like figure that out on their own. Right. But, but you know, you're still at the table there trying to influence it. And I think that's honestly one of the fun parts, too, is you just get to like kind of be a part of someone else's journey and be a supporter for it. And um and really like see them grow into that role of CEO and building hopefully a world-class company. So let's talk a little bit about, let's shift to talk a little bit about all the things that you do as a VC, because I think a lot of LPs think, oh, I want to, I want to invest in startups and I can do this myself. Um, and maybe you can, but I find that usually that statement is made with the absence of knowledge of all the things that are required to do it as well as a professional. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is your, what does your day look like? What are your responsibilities? How many deals do you guys look at a year? Yep. Break that down. Cool. Well, there, I think there's, there's sort of like four key phases in a VC's existence. So the first is fundraising. So just like a startup needs to go raise money, we as a fund need to go raise money, um, which is kind of the point of this whole podcast. But we go out and we build relationships with both individuals and institutions and sort of like pitch our fund strategy in hopes of raising a fund. And then, you know, that takes a lot of work. Um, for our first fund, it took us 18 months to raise our first fund. Our second fund took about 12 months and our third fund took about eight months. So I think we're getting better at it, but, you know, we have more track record and more relationships, but, you know, that's a lot of work to raise a fund. So let's assume you would go out and you're able to raise a fund. The second thing you need to do is attract startups. So we, we call that sourcing. And I think this is actually the, the most important part of venture capital is you need to make sure that you are getting in the mix with the best deals within whatever your strategy is. So if you're an AI focused fund, like how are you making sure that the best AI startups know about you and you get to at least, you know, have them pitch you, build a relationship to see if you want to invest. Um, if you're a regional fund, how do you make sure that all the local startups are coming to you? If you're a marketplace fund or whatever it is, like how are those businesses, do they know about you? And so we as VCs need to spend a lot of time building um, our network and our brand and our, our reputation to make sure that the best startups are both finding us 
but also we need to spend a lot of work. And this has been a big shift in the venture industry where historically startups came to VCs. Now it's shifted and so competitive. VCs are outreaching to startups and we've set up, and I know a lot of VC funds as well have set up all these trackers to figure out like who's starting companies and what, you know, and basically being like basically doing outbound marketing. So sourcing is, I would call it 30% of our time outside. Let's, let's assume we fundraised. So now we have a fund. I would say sourcing is about 30% of our time. Then there's selecting. So sourcing is like kind of top of funnel, making sure you're meeting with a ton of entrepreneurs. We're meeting with probably 20 to 25 companies a week. And that's sort of like top of funnel. Then it's like, which ones are, are getting through that funnel that we get really excited about? And how do we choose sort of the best of the ones that have stood out? Um, and for us, that's about one investment a month. Um, but you know, that's, we're, we're investing in less than 1% of the company. So you have to meet a lot and then sort of like figure out what's your process for making, actually making an investment. And then the fifth one we call scaling, which is working with the entrepreneurs that you've now invested in. Mm -hmm. So it's really important as a VC, at least from our viewpoint, it's not that you just give this entrepreneur a million dollars and you say, Hey, see you in, you know, 10 years, hopefully it's how are we supporting that entrepreneur? So what is the cadence of working with them? And that could be as much as weekly meetings. It could be, you know, maybe as infrequent as quarterly board meetings. Um, from our perspective, we're super hands-on with the companies we work with. So we're in constant communication, helping them meet, connect with talent, helping them meet customers, helping them solve problems. So you're very active day to day. And I would say from our perspective, let's call sourcing 30%, selecting 15%, about 50% of our time is working with the portfolio companies that we've already invested in to make sure that those companies have the best shot of being successful. Kind of the last 5% for us is like operations, which is the day-to-day -day of running a venture fund, which is actually surprisingly a lot of work, but you know, <laughs> audit, tax, accounting, data, and that sort of stuff. So I would say like, those are the buckets. An average day for me is probably meeting, probably meeting five plus new startups that I got connected with and kind of getting to know them. It's spending a lot of time with my partner and our team deciding which companies do we want to advance through our, our pipeline. It's spending a lot of time with our portfolio companies just to make sure that they have the resources they need to be successful. Um, and then, you know, around that managing an inbox with, you know, 300 emails a day, plus, you know, tax audit, accounting operations, managing every entrepreneur well. emailing so, you saying, Hey, do you know yeah. this customer? Can you make an intro? Yep. Do you, I mean, I, so I not I a lot like, of work, not a lot of work. <laughs> <at all. laughs> I feel like I have, I have the second best job in the world. The best job in the world is being an entrepreneur on the mission of something that you are obsessed with. The second best job in the world is mine because I get to enable those folks and kind of be a small part on their journey. Um, they have a harder job than I do the entrepreneurs, but like, at least from my perspective, like we work our ass off to like, you know, make sure we're delivering value to our customers, which are our, our startups, but also to our investors. Cause you know, we're stewards of their capital. Let's talk a little bit about like all the ways that you get deal flow. Cause I think that's important. Yep. Um, and how many deals you're looking at? Like, well, you, you said know, it's 20, a, 25 a week. Yeah. But like yeah. that's, a, in, in that's a the number we're meeting with. So like, we'll look at about 5,000, three to 5,000 startups a year. Our fund. Wow, like, we'll think about, about that. twelve. That's a lot of companies yeah. to look yeah. at, and you have to know what you're looking at, and you have to yeah. assess. You know, is this guy blowing smoke? Is this well? And here's the challenge. Like, I mean, a unique opportunity and challenge for us at the earliest stage is if you're a late stage investor. First of all, there's not five thousand startups to look at a year that get to like Series B or Series C. Right. And also, if you're a Series B or C, you have a lot of data. Like, you have years of revenue data, probably. You have like years of cohort analysis around how the startups users are, are in or engaging with the product. On our side as a seed fund, you know, this might just be the track record of the entrepreneurs prior. This might be just the caliber of their idea. And so 
really, you know, we're investing in a team and a dream. And so the only way that I think that you can really diligence that is by spending time with the pr prospective, um, you know, companies and founders you might invest in. And so that's, that's the part that doesn't really scale. That's a challenge, but yeah, we'll look at three to 5,000 startups a year. We'll probably meet with about 20 to 25 a week. And that will eventually lead to about 10 to 12 investments per year. Yeah. And early stage is a lot more, um, I feel like, um, collaborative in the sense of like you guys, I think this is an important point. You guys aren't necessarily taking all the whole round. Like right. you're not objective. Your objective, which for a lot of later stage funds is, is like, we want to write the only check preferably and the biggest check. Maybe, yep. maybe we have one other partner that we yep. let in there where I think also a big part of your job is, especially if you're leading around is you have to manage these other investors, right? You have to answer their questions on the due diligence and you have to kind of like corral the cattle and everybody, okay, yeah. let's get in this thing. And like, okay, these are the terms and all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, this is, I think one of my favorite parts about this job is there are, there are, we get to work with other investors to support the companies. Yeah. And typically we have been the only investor in a round for a company, but more often than not, we collaborate with other folks that we trust. And, um, and that, that's a fun part is like teaming up. Like we've teamed up on yeah, deals super before, fun. you know, like, We've been, we've like worked on deals before. And so that's, that's a really fun thing, especially with the investors that you, you know, and trust. So we're very collaborative. We like working with other investors and our fund size is not in check size is not so big that we can't collaborate. And that's on purpose because we are a very collaborative firm. Yeah. I found that to be, I've done late stage and early stage, and that's what I really enjoyed yeah. about early stage, right? It's, it's much more like you said, they're, they're pursuing a dream. You're supporting them. You're all on the same team. You're going to add other people to the team. It's, it, it feels really good. It does. Yeah. So, so putting my LP hat on, uh, you're, I get ton of work, right? You're looking at tons of companies. You're getting tons of emails in, you need to set up meetings. You talk to them. Are you meeting with them for half an hour what kind of questions are you asking them? Like in my mind, or I mean, I know the amount of work that goes into this, but for the audience, it's like, you know, are you asking like, hey, how's your day going? You know, well, like what is the food? Like someone yeah, could think yeah, like, yeah. oh, he's just talking to the entrepreneur and he like kind of gets. Maybe let's do like an, ex a, let me let's do like a, an example sure. company, like camp yep. company sure. X. Yeah. Yep. Right. So, yep. so you, you know, from you find out about company X we'll make up how, and then through you and you, you invest, and then yep. we, we get a big exit. Cool. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what we're thinking from a venture perspective when we meet with a company and then we can like, even like I can role play some questions we might ask. So this is actually something I learned at Techstars is, and it's really carried over to our fund is how we look at things is we look at six things in rank order and it's team, 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 market, progress idea. Do you look and at it's team? sort of like a cheeky, like <laughs> reminder for us that at the stage we're investing, like, largely it's all about the team right. and the market and really like the existing progress or the idea doesn't matter. And in my experience, like the ideas of these companies at this stage morph so much that if you get obsessed with the idea, you're going to be disappointed because that may not be the idea that works. So what you have to get super excited about is the team um, and the market that they're going into. So we spend the vast majority of our time understanding the background of the team. Why did they choose this idea? Why are they uniquely suited to capitalize on this opportunity? What's their sort of earned insight around um, why they're, they think there's a, an opportunity in this market? What's novel about what they're doing? Um, those kind of areas is where we spend a lot of time. And so, yeah, it's really just about like getting to know people, understanding their background, understanding their motivations. Um, and, you know, there's sort of no shortcut. I mean, we've developed some questions that I think help us get to the answers somewhat quicker, 
but these are sort of longer conversations. But to an earlier question, what we end up doing is like, we kind of do quick 20 to 30 minute meetings with lots of startups, because what I have been able to hone, and I've been doing this now for seven years. And so I've probably met with 20 or 30,000 startups or something like it's probably insane at this point. Um, you know, I, I'm like pretty tuned now within 30 minutes, I can get a good sense. Like, is this the type of entrepreneur that I'm excited to work with and sort of pattern matches for me, at least like the characteristics to build an outlier company? And is this a market opportunity that is novel, differentiated, big, et cetera? And so we end up doing a lot of 20 or 30 minute meetings with tons of companies just to like sort of find the find the diamonds that really stand out to us. Um, and that doesn't mean all the other companies aren't going to be good companies, but the ones that just really appeal to us and then sort of narrowing that down. Um, and sometimes I share this sort of joke, um, which is I meet a lot of people who want to get into investing in startups and and maybe it's like, you know their nephew is starting a company. And so they're like, Hey, should I invest in that company? And I'm like, I don't know if that's going to be successful. I think it's great to support your nephew in a, in a company, but if you really want to do venture, well, like you need to see a ton of companies, like you need to see thousand plus companies a year, I think to, to get into the best companies and to do a good job of it. And so the challenge for most investors is if you're not investing in a fund, you really have to do this full time to make sure you're seeing the best stuff and seeing a lot of it. And if you're not like outsource it to a manager who is doing it like, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. Yeah. And, and one of our theses here is that, you know, most people would be better off focusing on the one thing they're really good at, because even if you choose to, oh, okay, I want to put in the work, right? I want to follow the playbook. There's that learning curve. And like you said, you have, you've met with 30,000 companies, right? And, and I actually think like, I want to highlight your time at Techstars because I think that also is really cool about your background and how to kind of parlays into um, your venture fund as well. So like, let's talk a little bit about your time at Techstars. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So um, I'll, I'll like zoom through a little bit more background. So I started as a founder, which I think has really helped me have empathy for the entrepreneurial journey and know what entrepreneurs are going through when, you know, we're, we're sitting next to them and we've invested and it's like a rough time. Um, and I think that's helped us earn our way into a lot of deals too, because like, we know what it's like. Yeah. But then after being an entrepreneur, I was lucky to, I actually went through the Techstars Accelerator as a founder. So I've, I've, I've had a lot of connection with that ecosystem and it's given like an incredible amount to me. I usually joke that everything good that's happened in my entrepreneurial career came, has come from Techstars, which is, it's not even really a joke. It's pretty true. But um, I went through the program. So I was very familiar what, with what it, the benefits that it gave to entrepreneurs. And just for the listeners, yeah. Natty, let's, let's define what Techstars, Techstars is. Yeah. yeah. So Techstars is a startup accelerator and the goal is surround about 10 startups with a intense 13 week period where they get to work very closely with tons of mentors to help them figure out and validate their business and effectively make two years of progress in 13 weeks um, and build a support network so that they can increase the odds of success for their company. Um, started in Boulder, just up the road from here. And it is now a, a worldwide phenomenon running 50 plus accelerators a year around the world, backing, I think, well over 500 startups a year. Um, and having gone through it, I know that it is an incredible experience and level up for the entrepreneurs and businesses that go through it. And then I was lucky to, after I sold my company, come back to the accelerator in Boulder, uh, which I went through and uh, run it for six programs. That's actually where I, Pascal and I uh, met. I went well. through Natty's program. I, I was lucky enough uh, to build a company that then Natty invested in. And that's how we got to know each other. So yeah. Well. Yeah. It was, which is great. Um, and so I ran that program from 2015 to 2020 
And that was really a great experience for me because it's where I learned how to invest. And it's where I learned how to be founder centric. It's where I learned, you know, what matters to entrepreneurs at that early stage and really get to practice that a ton. So I invested in 64 companies over what ended up being about five and a half years, looked at, you know, well north of probably 10 to 20,000 companies during that time. And so it gave me as an investor, a ton of reps to both like test myself to see like, am I good at this? Do I love this? Is this what I want to do for the rest of my career? Um, but also kind of build a reputation in the ecosystem and say like, hey, Natty's been giving back to this ecosystem. He's been doing this, you know, for a long time, which gave me the foundation to then go and raise uh, with my partner, Ryan, Matchstick Ventures and really go kind of all in on the venture side of things. But that was a phenomenal experience to learn how to do venture, um, in my opinion, kind of like, you know, the right way. Yeah, it's really cool. So now let's dive into maybe kind of transitioning over into your fund. Tell tell us about, you know, there are tons of venture funds out there. Why Matchstick? Cool. So uh, let me describe Matchstick and then I'll tell you why that, why we like this thesis. So at Matchstick, we're investing in sort of like three, with three core thesi. Is it thesis? Thesis is thesi. <laughs> However you want to um, say it. <laughs> uh, the first is that we believe great entrepreneurs are everywhere. And so we have a geographic focus on investing in startups that are off the coast um, and exclusively in the Rockies, which is mostly startups in Colorado and Utah, but also looking at Montana, Arizona, Wyoming, et cetera. And then across the North region of the U.S., which for us is mostly Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and then the Toronto area. And the reason why we focused on those areas is it's sort of where we grew up as entrepreneurs and investors. So we have this big network, people know us, we have a reputation. And so we get to leverage that in terms of sourcing and driving startups towards us, which we talked about earlier, which is, I think, a really critical part of being a good investor. Um, and so we really have like 15 years of track record in those two ecosystems. And so people know us, which is really important. The second is we've seen over the last 10 years that great entrepreneurs are everywhere and you can build a great startup anywhere. And the entrepreneurs in these markets have less access to capital. And so that's an opportunity for us to show up and, and be their first partner. And so uh, the nice thing about that is there's less competition for us to get into deals, which if you're investing on the coast, it, it's pretty cutthroat and it's hard to get into the deals you want to get into. We have, we really don't have that problem. We get into like 95% of the deals that we want, which is great. The second is the entrepreneurs are much more realistic around their valuations in these markets. And that is not that they're sacrificing their ambition, but on the coast, since there's so much capital there, the valuations end up like being much higher. And it really matters the entry price um, when you're determining your returns at the end of a fund. And so we feel like that there's a much fairer balance in these markets between the price that investors invest at and the equity that the entrepreneurs are selling um, that is just like better for the whole ecosystem. And so that ends up showing up in our returns. Um, yeah, so that's so the main thing is this geographic focus. The second is we're only investing in pre-seed and seed stage companies. And why we focus on that is historically the best returning venture funds have been the ones that focus on the earliest stages. Like we talked about earlier, you just have much larger potential multiples on top of the companies because you're investing so early. It's also the the phase of business building we know the best. Um, having done Techstars and run run that accelerator program, I just like have we both and my partner has as well. We got a lot of reps in at that stage, so it's just what we know the best. I don't know getting from Series B to Series C that well but I know how to get a company to a million dollars in revenue, like probably as good as anyone. Cause I've just done it with 150 companies now. Sure. Um, and then the third lens for us in the thesis is we only back software companies. 
And this is important because we believe that software companies are have the, the fastest and largest potential of growth. Um, it's the businesses that we started and know super well. And um, we just like the dynamics of how those businesses scale better than other businesses. And so Matchstick is, is we are now the most active investor in our core geographies, in many of the states in our core geographies. And so we're really well known as being the seed stage one of the seed stage investors in these markets in software companies. And so we're just leaning into that strategy. And the good news is, is that strategy is working well. Um, our returns, uh, at least on paper, because, you know, as we talked about, these funds take a long time to return capital, at least on paper, are performing really well. We're very proud of the portfolio. And hopefully over time, that will turn into, you know, actual returns to our investors. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, somewhat of a differentiated strategy in, some, in the sense that not that many people are focusing on these geographies. We're happy to bet on teams super early and, you know, we just believe a lot in software. So um, my pitch to p- prospective LPs is if you believe innovation is happening in these markets, if you want to be a part of the next wave of the great companies in these regions, if you believe that software is going to continue to dramatically impact our world and you want to be involved with companies from the earliest stages and see them grow, like we're a great place to put your money Um and I have this kind of like silly dream that I don't know if I've ever told anyone. So you guys might be the first in your audience as well is like, my dream is that I live in Boulder, but you know, we're here in Denver today is I'm driving between Boulder and Denver and whether it's downtown Denver or the buildings between Boulder and Denver, there's logos of companies on buildings that run great businesses, have fantastic cultures that people love to work for it, that I had a small part in, in helping build and really created a, a dynamic, um, employment ecosystem in Colorado, in Utah, in the markets that we, we, um, invest in. And I think, I think we're on our way to that, but as you know, in venture, it takes a long time. So check in with me in 10 years and we'll see uh, how many logos we have, uh, you know, dotting the the sky skyline here. I like it. That's a beautiful dream. Yep. Uh, uh, Some follow-up questions around you lead rounds, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why do you choose to lead rounds versus follow? So maybe distinguishing between the two, there are venture funds that, that don't lead. And, uh, and then I'd love for you to maybe go into some more detail because I've personally worked with you in this capacity and I've had Natty literally coach me with my co-founders, you know, from, you know, us break, potentially breaking up the company or raising more money and trying to figure out what to do. Like maybe get into some examples of the, midnight calls you take and the maybe the therapy that you provide or the guidance or the connections that like were so impactful that that you are doing for your portfolio yeah yeah cool yeah so um leading and following so a little background on that is typically in a in a fundraising round there's like a lead investor and this is the person who's working most closely with entrepreneur setting the terms negotiating the amount they're going to raise the price of that um of the equity, et cetera. And they tend to be the one that maybe takes the board seat if there's a board uh, seat available. And so um, we're happy to lead. We actually don't lead all of the deals. We've, we have decided that like our, our mission is like, let's get conviction around an entrepreneur. Once we get conviction, we work with them. And if they need a lead, we're happy to lead. If they have another investor that we know and trust that wants to lead, we're happy to be a participant or follow on. Um, we end up leading about half the deals that we do. And so what's helpful to the entrepreneur is like when you have a lead that tends to circle and like galvanize a a bunch more capital to come together, because hopefully someone of high integrity, conviction, reputation is like committing to this company. It makes it more comfortable for other people to invest in it. And so we're happy to do that. Um, 
and and be that signal to the market when we get uh, when we invest in a company. But we're also happy to join around that, as we talked about earlier, like someone we're we trust is is investing in and we get to collaborate with them. Um, did that answer that? Yeah, totally. That question? Cool. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, the midnight phone calls and help like that. I mean, this is probably my favorite part of the job is like I love when we're able to build a trusting relationship with a entrepreneur and they they call me at midnight. And actually, frankly, one of the questions that we ask ourselves before we make an investment is we expect every entrepreneur is going to call us Friday at midnight, you know, at least once, you know, over the next two years. And, and are we excited to take that phone call? Are we like happy to jump out of bed and go, you know, pull up our laptop and spend two hours like helping solve a problem? And if there's any tingling or spidey sense or, you know, instinct that that's not going to be good, we pass on the deal because that's the stuff we love. And that's, I think, the role that's important um, to take, certainly as an early stage partner with these entrepreneurs. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, it literally is midnight phone calls trying to solve, you know, an existential crisis. I mean, we just you know, who knows when this airs, but the, over the last week we had, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had a bunch of stress and, you know, we'll see if it ends up failing or what ends up happening with it. But like we literally spent, I spent five straight days on the phone from 5 a.m. till 9 p.m. with entrepreneurs, having helping them figure out how do they access their funds if they're stuck at SVB? What are their alternatives? Helping them set up new bank accounts, working with our investors to understand our exposure, you know, building contingency plans with entrepreneurs. Um, sharing information across our whole portfolio and like what a great opportunity for us to show up for our entrepreneurs and really like help them. And, um, you know, it's stuff like that. Like maybe it's, maybe it's the black swan out of nowhere thing. Maybe it's just, you know, the entrepreneur, I had, a, I had one of our portfolio founders call me yesterday who was in town and he said, Hey, I have this really challenging conversation with my board coming up. This is a company that's scaled beyond our stage. We were uh, one of the first investors in it. And he calls me and he says, you know, I have this really challenging conversation with the board. Can I role play it with you? And I moved my schedule around. We spent an hour and a half together in person and he left that and then went off and crushed his board meeting and like got everyone on, on the same page and got the outcome that he wanted. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the fun stuff. That's super cool. Yeah. And you guys want entrepreneurs that want that. We want that. Yeah. 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 If there's anything I know, uh, you also look for entrepreneurs that are maybe coachable. Is that still the case? Talk to me about that. Yeah. It's funny. I would say like earlier in my investor journey, I really optimize for coachability. I actually optimize a little less for it now. And we'll see how this plays out. I think that you need entrepreneurs that are willing, that are excited about feedback and data, but there's like sort of a spectrum here. So if you're too coachable, like you don't have strong enough opinions, or you're, you're just sort of like blowing around in the wind. And if you're not coachable enough, you know, you, you're unwilling to take data and evolve and like listen to and change your mind. And so I think the right spot is somewhere in the middle there where it's the entrepreneur who's very excited about gathering data, but is not, but is, is sort of like brings a stubbornness, you know, that is going to like push them to like really think about that from like a core first principles perspective. If it changes their strategy, they're open to that, but they're not just going to kind of get pushed around. So that's actually what we're looking for now um, is the entrepreneur who like aggressively seeks out feedback but is very like dis discerning in what feedback they take. It's like, I think of the analogy, like you don't want somebody that just seems like they're, like you said, just a leaf in the wind, like they can change yeah. direction at any time. But you also don't want somebody that's like, that's seen in the office where Michael Scott, just like the GPS yes. says go and he just drives into <laughs> right. the lake, right? Like, right. <laughs> you don't, you don't mean, want that either. It's such a nuance, you know, it's such a nuanced like perspective. And so, um, yeah, I mean, but I, I do think like, you know, 
if you're not willing to take feedback and like learn from the data, like you're screwed. So like that, that is super critical. Um, and we are looking for that trait in, in entrepreneurs. Are there, are there venture funds or strategies or approaches that you see in the market today that you don't agree with? You know, you don't need to mm-hmm. name companies. Mm-hmm. Um, or what makes a bad VC? Maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's a good question. I think the bad VC is an easier one to answer. And let me see if I can like evolve that into like strategies that I don't think work. Um, I think a bad VC is, is someone who doesn't realize that this is like a multi, um, multi move game in the sense that they tend to optimize for the immediate transaction or the immediate situation and Mm. not think about that. This is a business built on multiple opportunities to work with, a small community and that if you overly optimize for any given transaction, you're really shooting yourself in the foot for, for the long-term benefit of your LPs in your fund. And so I frequently see investors who optimize for one specific transaction, not realizing that they're really polluting their brand, ruining their reputation in, like I mentioned, like a relatively small ecosystem, like venture is not that big. Like everyone is talking at the end of the day, really the only thing that you have to stand on as a VC is your reputation, both with other investors, with your LPs and founders. And so when you over, you're overly transactional, I think that you end up eroding your opportunity in the long run. So, so give us an example of that. I, I have an example of exactly that because I dealt with that at Techstars yep. um, in my role. But do you want to share your example? I mean, I'd be curious. To hear yeah, I mean, my, my example would be is, man, we would get into so many situations where, uh, so when you make an early stage investment, uh, Techstars is usually one of the first checks into companies. They, in those agreements, you have pro rata rights. Pro rata rights mean that when the next, when the company comes around to raise capital the next time, that you have rights to maintain your ownership percentage. And so, you know, if you invested, 100k and then you know the company grew 10x in valuation you are now allowed to put in a minimum of a million dollars in order to maintain that that percentage and there would be so many there would be there would be a lot of other vcs that would come in and uh would try and push tech stars out of the deal and and there's a lot of dynamics at play where it's like okay like tech stars is a brand you know we're there to support the entrepreneur uh, as a, you know, yeah, I've yeah, worked totally. with you as well. And, um, and you know, I think there's a lot of short sightedness where it's like, you want to be working alongside the other investors. And I've even had, you know, at one point, uh, so uh, Natty moved on and, and started matchstick and we actually worked on deals together where, you know, I was uh, working on the follow on fund and I'd, I'd say like, we're going to make this investment in this company. And, and Natty had a, already had a huge stake. And so we worked together and he would, you know, maybe we would get a little bit more of allocation. You'd get a little less, but now we're both together and we're, we're a team. And that's how I think like really successful VCs over a long period of time become really successful. And I thought it was awesome about how you approached it because it's a long-term game. You know, you yeah. get this reputation amongst entrepreneurs that, man, this, this VC, you know, is pushing me around. Like, you know, when I raised money from, from VCs, it was very much, I I talked to other founders, would you have this, uh, VC on your cap table again? Like, how did they, how did they act on the board? Were they, 
you know, were they more of a teammate or coach or were they the it's my way or the highway? And like there are a lot of VCs that that ruin companies. Absolutely. Um, yep. And so so th- those are the kind of the experiences. Yeah, yeah. I have very similar experiences where like another example would be um, w- one of the terms in a in a term sheet is a liquidation preference, which effectively means like when the company sells, it guarantees that the investors get their money back and then what you know we share in the upside. And so what's most common is a 1x liquidation preference, which means let's say $5 million was invested in a company, the company sells for 20 million, the first 5 million goes back to the investors to make them whole and then we sort of like and there's some nuance in this but we share the remaining 15 million based on the cap table and the returns. And this is sort of like a very standard term uh and makes a lot of sense. What you start what you sometimes see is an investor who says I want a 3x liquid, liquidation preference. Which would basically mean in that scenario where a company sells for twenty million, but there was five million invested, the investors are going to get back five three times the five million, so they get back the fifteen million, the first fifteen million, and then there's only five million to share with the cap table. So this sounds great as the investor. You're like, why wouldn't I have like the biggest liquidation preference I possibly can have? Because I'm sort of guaranteeing returns for me. The problem is, yes, if you're thinking about one turn and this company selling, like that might be a effective strategy for increasing your returns as an investor, putting aside that it is certainly going to piss off the entrepreneurs because, you know, they're the ones who did all the hard work and got, you know, a fraction of the return. The problem is you have now set a standard for the future investors. So let's say that company goes off and raises the next round. And those investors look at the terms of the prior round and they say, oh, wow, you got a 3x liquidation preference. We want that too. The problem is the next investors have more seniority. So they now have a, they're going to get three times their money back before you as an investor in that prior round get any of your money back. So you, in sort of the short-sighted nature of trying to optimize for that one situation, have really shot yourself in the foot because if this company goes off and every round there's a 3x liquidation preference, you as the early investor are sitting below. There's an immense stack of capital that needs to get returned before you would get any return. And so, you know, that's an example where people sort of, or investors optimize for like the near term for themselves not thinking about what are the implications of this in a multi-turn game, especially when there are, you know, everyone on the background is talking, VCs are talking to each other all the time, founders are talking to each other, and reputation is like so critical in this business. Like the moment that entrepreneurs don't want to work with you, you're basically dead. The moment that co-investors don't want to bring you into a deal or give you an allocation in a deal, like you're dead. At that point, you really have adverse selection and you are just looking at, you know, the less appealing investment opportunities. And at that point, you know, why, why even be in the game? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Thank, thank you for sharing. Yeah. I think like all of the, where does stuff go sideways and how do you separate different managers, you know, between if, if you're going to invest in them, understanding what style do you, um, what style of VC do you uh, resonate with? What's, what's, what's their process? How do they think? I think when you're thinking about investing in any kind of fund manager across any asset class, that's one of the most important pieces, if not the most important piece. Yep. yep. Yeah. My, my experience has been, you know, your venture is to be realized gains, right? And most people think of a transaction like my job is to get the best deal possible. And then I get the reward of that right away. But the problem is, is if it doesn't feel like a win-win, then the entrepreneur is not going to even realize <laughs> that. So it's like, great. You now own 60% of a company that nobody wants to work on. Right. Or it's worth nothing. Or so now it's worth nothing because here's to grow the pie. Right. The 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 point is venture is like when when venture really works, 
it's a combination of you know, majority of the entrepreneurs building a great company, building a great culture, a product people want in a new market, et cetera, with investors. And all of our goal is like, let's make the biggest pie possible. And yeah, sometimes maybe we have a slightly smaller piece than we intended. But like if that pie is massive, we're going to do super well. Right. And I think that the more alignment there is with the investors and the founders and stuff is sort of like simple and we can spend the vast majority of our time just building the business and building value, increasing the size of that pie, we all do well. And it and I think like maybe maybe that's like a summary too. like the the bad investors that I see really are focused on on the edge cases, the nickel and diming, the like optimizing of a few pennies here and there versus like the big thing that matters is taking a hundred million dollar valued business to a billion dollars. Like that's, that's what matters. It doesn't matter, you know, on, on the, on the edges. And that doesn't mean that we don't have our attention to detail and we're not like, you know, trying to do everything well, but in venture you get paid by the outlier winners and how big they are. So like, let's focus on that. And, and I think like that's important to focus on Natty because if you are a good VC and you have that team play mindset, then entrepreneurs sometimes don't even realize how much of an asset that is in the sense of protecting you in future rounds right. against predatory VCs. And I, and I find that that's one of the things that a, like a, a second time or third time entrepreneur understands that is immensely valuable right. because, you know, I would spend a lot of my time on different boards kind of having the side conversation with the other, the other VC, like that's not how we're going to do things. Right. Um, and I'm on sure half of the entrepreneur on behalf and, of the and entrepreneur yourself, and yourself, like you were probably aligned in like in that scenario, you realized that the best way for you to improve your returns was actually the strategy that made most sense to the entrepreneur. Right. But the, but the investors were trying to optimize for something else. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think it's a huge value at, I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of yours. I've seen your work and I know that you're always there for the entrepreneur. And I think that, Often even first time founders don't realize how valuable that is because the truth is, you know, there's a famous saying, you name the price, I'll name the terms. And there's like 50 ways that you could sell a company for $100 million and own 50% of it and get like a $5 million check. And as an entrepreneur, you really don't have time to worry about that all the time. And it's such a benefit to have a VC in your corner that is worried about that for you and is looking out for you and ultimately themselves as well, but really for you. Um, it's, our, it's invaluable. Is, you know, at the end of the day, the entrepreneurs are creating the value, right? So we want to give them every possible resource and give them the best chance of building a multi-billion dollar company. And I think if we, you know, VCs, like we just spend a lot of time, like there, or there's a, a, I see some patterns of, of like not really focusing on that. Like that's what matters, right? right? Like, can we build a billion dollar company? If we build that, we're all going to do great. Right. You know? Right. I mean, I know it sounds simple. There's a lot of work, obviously, that goes into that. But yeah, I mean, that's my answer to the question is like, I think the bad VC behavior is sort of like not focusing on the prize and really like not not creating simple structures that create the most alignment with the entrepreneurs and really getting out of their way and, and looking at yourself as like, you're not a headwind for them. You need to be a tailwind for the entrepreneur, open doors for them, unlock opportunity, make good introductions, get out of the way when it makes sense, trust them, and let's go build a big business. Yeah, they're already doing the hardest thing right. in the world to do. Why do they is, need extra friction? Right, yeah. exactly. Thank you for coming on the show, Natty. This I, was I awesome. I have one thing that I think yeah. we didn't cover, which I, might be important for- Let's do it. Let's I'm do just, it. I, hey, I Keith, let's keep going. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, up to you guys. One thing we could talk about is like, what are the what are the terms on a VC fund? Like, is that something that you think? Oh, absolutely. Would be- yeah, yeah, the fees, all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, 
I think because I, I think there's some unique stuff. I don't know other assets. Like I know this asset class super well. Like I'm obsessed with it. I've been doing it for seven years. I'm gonna do it for the next 20. Honestly, like I'm, I listen to your show because I need to learn about other asset classes because <laughs> I'm just like so immensely steeped in this one. But I do what I do know is that the sort of structure of VC funds, I think, is a little bit different from other asset classes. So I'll throw it out there. You guys can then yeah. you know, analyze it and compare it to other ones. But I think it's important for for LPs to know is sort of the standard deal is that you commit to a venture fund, this 10 year vehicle. Um, you know, we, like we talked about earlier, committing a certain amount of capital that's called over four years. What's nice about it being called over four ish years is you usually people can commit a larger check, a larger amount than they could literally write a check for that day because they're going to spread it out over four years. So I usually talk with LPs and make sure they understand that because sometimes there are minimums to join funds that are higher than an LP would feel comfortable writing a a, a full check for. But if you think about breaking that over four years, sometimes, you know, that makes it easier. The second thing is, is sort of like, how do, how do we get paid? Um, and so the typical terms on a VC fund are two and 20. And so what that means is there's a management fee of 2% of the total committed capital per year that pays for the managers to run the fund, the team, legal operations, et cetera. Um, and then the, the GPs earn 20% of the returns after hundred percent of the capital has been returned. And so they share 20% of the upside. So let's say you run a $10 million fund and you generate $20 million of returns. The first 10 million goes back to the investors. Then there's $10 million in gains. 2 million goes back to the GPs to be split. However, you know, their staff is, um, and 8 million goes back to the limited partners. Um, so let's do, let's do some LP yep. math, put a hundred thousand into your fund. I'm going to pay $2,000 a year in fees to keep the lights on, allow the team to go find deal flow, basically do things that add the value of yep, build the, the value portfolio. of my investment work yep. with the portfolio companies. Then as exits start occurring over time, once I get back a hundred thousand um, dollars, every dollar that comes back, that's pure profit. So yep. it's, it's past what I invested past a hundred thousand. Um, it's going to be 20 cents for every dollar. That's the, how the GPs basically make their money. Yep. yep. Yeah. And to be, and to be clear, because I know this industry super well is the the 2% management fee is also not just like, Oh, you're making, Oh, the GPs making a bunch of extra money every year. And you know, it's like, like talk through all the, like it doesn't go, go very deep, far. Yeah. yeah talk yeah. about <laughs> all the expenses that you need to cover. Yeah. And then, and I imagine some of the, the GP carry that you're taking as a success fee still probably covers what you pay in management. So maybe yeah. go into that. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the fund size. So, you know, these bigger later stage funds or even like multi-stage funds that have a billion of AUM, like the 2% on that is a lot of money. And those yeah. folks I think are making a lot of money. Um, it's a, I'm not anti those, that model, but I think like the incentives are a little bit different than a smaller fund like mine, which I'll tell you about because there is so much fee income coming into those big funds, but you'll see those big funds have much bigger staffs. Like, they might have a hundred staff members, uh, 20 investing partners, 20, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what they would, you know, but like legal ops, accounting, Offices. brand, like, you know, marketing, like, you know, you could have a whole staff and that's kind of on the other side for a smaller fund. So our fund is $53 million or current fund. You know, the, the 2% doesn't go very far. We have a staff that we have to pay. We have a bunch of operating expenses. We have legal expenses. We have accounting, we have tax, we have our salaries. So, you know, like, I'm fine. I, I don't need much. You know, I'm very incentivized by the carry. You know, that's my big, you know, golden ticket there. 
But, you know, the money for smaller emerging managers or smaller funds, like the fees don't really, you're not getting rich on the fees. Um, but I think that's good because, you know, that aligns incentives. Like my opportunity to do super well is when the LPs do really well, which is like we go out and we find the next, you know, Stripe, the next Facebook, the next open AI, the next whatever it is, like we're going to make a lot of money, but so are you. Um, and I think those incentives are are nicely aligned, at least on the smaller fund side of things. Well, and there's a lot of data that supports that, right? Is that, you know, if you run a billion dollar fund, you can sit back and get rich and the fund really not do very well. You you really don't return. And it's hard to return those funds, like to return, like to yeah, double. Totally. Like, I think these billion dollar funds do well if they maybe double. Right. Like my expectations are much higher than that. Um, and I think the reality is I can do better than that because it's, easier to grow a smaller pot of money than it is to, you know, double a billion dollar fund. Yeah, Warren Buffett's well, talked about that. Like, well, yeah. and also you you have to do better right. to get right. paid. Totally. So so the the incentive is there, like you said. Well, this is something like I, I also encourage LPs is like when you meet managers that you might invest in, like, what is their level of hustle? Like, you know, I've done okay. I, I had a startup that like had a modest exit. I bought a house in Boulder. Like I'm comfortable, but I have not made it. And I think like what you want to do is you want to back the GPs who are hustling and have something to prove and, you know, have their reputation on the line, which is like what we do. I mean, my, I basically spent 15 years building a reputation to be able to do this fund. Like my reputation is on the line. Right. You, you know, I'm going to work damn well, damn hard to like make this successful because the upside is there for me if I do well but also my reputation's on the line. And I think you want, like, I think sometimes people think of like, oh, ventures, like an easy business or like, I don't know, people are kind of like sitting back and getting rich and like, yeah, some people are, but there's also this whole cohort of emerging managers that are working their ass off and have a lot to prove and are like all in on it. And, you know, that's the type of entrepreneur we want to back. And I also think that's the kind of GP you want to back if you're looking for a fund to invest in. So something I'd love, I'd love you to maybe give your, uh, MBA example, um, and, and for you to maybe work off of that. But the, the question to both of you here is, you know, some LPs come and, and think about like, wow, I'm giving away 20% of the upside. I put all the capital in, uh, what gives, right? Like what, how does that make sense? That feels like two and 20 feels like a pretty big fee. How, how do you, how do you rebuttal? Did you want to answer it? I'm happy to. If you we want. could we could both answer. Yeah. Um, look, the truth is you're giving up 20 percent of profit only, so it's like a commission model, and their profits you wouldn't have realized otherwise. So it, it's you know when you, you you think about the amount of work. Usually, I find that that people that have that opinion don't realize the scope of the work, which is why we on the show really talk about what it takes to do it professionally. And if you had anybody do that amount of work for something, um, they might think 20% is too little. Um, so I, I actually think it's it's a very reasonable structure, especially because it's it's of the profits, not of the principal. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think the other thing that is is unique is like, in other asset classes, the GP can get rich quickly. I guess it can happen in, in venture too, because sometimes you have these like rapid successes, but the majority of the people that I know in venture, like it, it takes a long time to make your money. And so what you're kind of like, you know, you have someone who's working on your behalf for 10 plus years. You know, if you're a, if you run a hedge fund and you have a really good year, you can cash out and be done. 
And it's all of a sudden, and like, yeah, cool. I mean, your, your investors made good money, but like you have a team that's dedicated to growing the value of your assets for a long period of time. I think at 2%, that's pretty reasonable. And then to your point, just sharing in like a commission structure, 20% of the upside, I think feels pretty fair for the, you know, risk that, that, that invest, that GP is taking, um, in terms of, you know, we don't like, we don't have liquidity in that until you do. And so it's not like, I know there's sort of like a duration, uh, cost or benefit that I think is, is sort of undervalued in, in venture. We talked about sort of like the duration and the, and the fixed, um, illiquidity as a feature versus a bug. One other thing that people like about venture is it kind of rides across cycles, um, unlike other assets. So maybe, maybe real estate's kind of similar to this, but like, you know, if you're, if you're in and out of public equities, like you're riding the cycles like crazy, right? You're trying to time the time, the market, which is super hard in venture, you're building a big company or you aren't. And so it tends to sort of even out across cycles and people like that they have their money parked in a place that they cannot, they actually like cannot move it around across cycles. And then, you know, there's some luck certainly in venture. Well, there's a lot of luck in venture, but like luck in terms of like, when are you, or when are you investing those dollars? Did that end up being like a good time from a cycle perspective? And when your companies are exiting, is that like a good IPO window, a good exit window or not? And you know, that that's sort of out of your control, but at least you're kind of riding across the like, you know, day to day, month to month gyrations of of the markets. Yeah, I find the illiquidity in venture is both a feature and a bug yep. um, because it, it it feels it feels confining sometimes in the sense of I can't do anything with this capital. I'm along for the ride. But the truth is, like, if you talk to a lot of investors, even in, you know, the Ubers or the Googles or the the big, big wins, if they had liquidity as an option, they never would have realized the big win. Right, they would have sold it. Early. They would have sold it. They would have yeah. gotten news that, you know, because venture is constant ups and downs. It's, oh, you know, Microsoft called, they want to do a pilot. And if it was a liquid asset, the stock price would just skyrocket. And right. then, oh, Microsoft canceled the pilot. Oh, stock price like plummets, right? right? And, and a lot of people would, you know, people are very reactionary. They're very emotional and they're investing. I think that's why it's really smart to use professionals um, like yourself. And then subsequently, I think that's where liquidity, I mean, studies have shown, right? The the problem with most investors is they're overactive with their right. investments. It's like, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market, right? right? Yeah. And exactly. I think like, what, <laughs> venture forces you to have a lot of time in the market. Right, you have to. <laughs> right, it's like, yeah. It's also do. why the diligence is so important yep. because you're basically getting married to this entrepreneur for 10 years. Yep. There's no, there's no like off, like easy off ramp or right. easy divorce. You can't just be like, eh, you know, this we don't like this entrepreneur. Right, right. We're, right. So like, we're like out. Yeah. It's, it's not an option. Right. Yeah. I also remember having a conversation with Jason Seats when I worked at Techstars, who is the, who is the chief investment officer there. And I asked him about you know, oh, you know, we're heading into this kind of economy where, you know, think equity markets are starting to go down. And uh, how does he think about investing? And and there was this very interesting answer that he gave, which was like, look, the venture fund it doesn't really matter to us if the market is up or the market is down. Uh, I mean, you might be able to get better valuations or something like that when you're investing, but people are still building businesses. Uh, and also, historically, we've seen some of the biggest businesses uh, being built in times of recession, like Uber or Airbnb or you know, things like that. And then uh, also, it's like like you said, one of the features uh, of doing capital calls over maybe a four-year time span is that you're not investing, you know, 
typically like if you're doing a syndication of a very specific real estate deal where you're buying one apartment building, you're buying that apartment building at this time. Whereas in venture, you are you're buying over you're you're automatically getting uh some vintage diversity. Some vintage diversification. Yeah, uh right. because you're investing X percent every single well, year. Well, this is something like uh that that was so we're coming out of like a, a crazy cycle in venture. So 2020, 2021 was sort of like outlandish, you know, amount of capital deployed and valuations and terms. And 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 thankfully that's corrected. And I think that it, it's a much healthier ecosystem now. But one of the problems you had was over that cycle, venture funds started deploying their capital much faster. So instead of a typical three-year, three to four-year deployment period, funds were deploying their capital in one to two years. And the problem is, is you lack, you lost vintage diversity. And by that, we mean, you know, the 2018 batch of companies sort of is going to have some characteristics, the 2019 batch of companies, the 2020, 2021. And you, across a fund, you actually want that diversity, both in terms of like the, the macro trends that you're investing into, the price of those startups, a lot of stuff like that. And you, and so it's actually like good to have a fund deployed over three to four years, but you saw this compression of that over the last few years. And that I think is going to like a bunch of those funds are going to underperform because they ended up deploying a ton of capital at the peak of the market versus a fund that maybe was more disciplined and invested over a longer time frame, maybe put some investments in at the peak, but it's also going to have a bunch of investments sort of in this like, you know, more sane era. So it really matters. It really matters. Well, cool. Yeah. Anything, anything you think we missed that you think is still relevant for, for LPs? I'm sure we missed a lot. I'm but. sure we did miss a lot, but, <laughs> but we you're only a short show. drive away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you guys. Yeah, no, yeah, thank you for coming for, on the show, Manny. On. Thank you for sharing everything and um, talk soon. Yeah. Thank you. All right.